night, like we did the history of doctrine some 10 years ago. And then we will uh, come back in the fall, the next fall, and do the second half of that course. So that's that. The other announcement is that Fred Wells went to be with the Lord this last Sunday morning. What? Mike. I keep saying Fred. I have a friend named Fred. Okay, Mike Wells. Mike Wells went to be with the Lord, and Mike had... um, uh, he he had Alzheimer's the last several years, so we haven't seen him in about five or six years. But he also contracted COVID about a month ago. And that was not the cause of death, but I'm sure that's what they're putting on their death certificate so they can keep their numbers up and scare everybody. And um, But anyway, his memorial service will be here next Wednesday, the 29th of July, and it will begin at uh, 11 o'clock in, in the morning. Now... I'm going to try to encourage, or I'm going to encourage folks who are members here that uh, we have limited space. So unless you knew Mike and Marilyn and were friends of theirs, we'd encourage you not to come. It will be live streamed because the spacing here is going to be limited. We will be taking space every other row, and we will uh, encourage and insist on spacing between family groups. And everyone will be required to wear a mask through the entire service. And then we will have a complete cleaning of the auditorium and the fellowship hall uh, before uh, we we meet here again. So uh, we're going to encourage uh, that and fo- try to follow all of the protocols that that we can. So that's going to be on next Wednesday. Cast your burden on the Lord and he shall sustain you. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? These are important promises. Several of the promises I quote before class are related to the faith rest drill. And with all of the things going on in our nation right now, it's very important that we claim those promises so that we can stay relaxed and that we can focus on our mission without the distractions of all the political things and the riots and the disturbances that are going on. Before we begin this evening, we need to make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord, and so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure you're walking by the Holy Spirit. That is the essence of fellowship. It is an active concept. It is defined as walking to people, walking together for a common purpose. And so it emphasizes our dependence upon God in our daily walk with him, as we grow towards spiritual maturity. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Uh, If you need to confess sin, 1 John 1, 9, it is uh, we confess by acknowledging our sins to him through silent prayer. And then uh, after a few moments, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we know you are a sovereign God. You have a plan and purpose in human history, and you are moving events towards that ultimate goal. 
We know that the next thing that we can expect is the rapture, and there are no signs, there are no prophecies, there's nothing that must be fulfilled in order for that to take place. It will come suddenly in the blink of an eye, uh, and we will not expect it whatsoever. And Father, we look forward to that. We anticipate your coming, the, the Lord's coming. And Father, we pray that as we uh, live out the rest of our lives, whether it's another day, another month, another decade, that you will give us the opportunities to minister to others and give them the, the certain hope that we have, the blessed hope that we are saved and have eternal life to spend in heaven with you and our Lord. Father, we pray for us tonight as we think about the daily responsibilities of our citizenship and how we are to make decisions at the polls in terms of who we select and who we uh, choose for our leaders and give us wisdom and humility. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One of the great distractions in voting is all the buzz and all the nonsense that goes on in an election year. And This year, I think we're going to outdo all previous years in terms of all of the things that come along, all of the charges, all of the claims, whatever they may be. But the bottom line is we have to select not only a, a, a leader and different, uh, different leaders, uh, congressional representatives, uh, senators, state representatives and senators, judges, and so all up and down the line, we need to select leaders who understand and will act in, uh, in concert with the divine institutions and a Judeo-Christian worldview. And I think that it may have been true even 20 years ago, but, but 30, 40 years ago, uh, sometimes it did not mean that we chose all the same party. But if we examine the party platforms today, I think that we have to, because it's so partisan and everybody does usually vote in lockstep, that no matter what other considerations there may be in terms of a person's personality or other uh, flaws or foibles, uh, we need to select a party platform that we will support that is consistent with the Judeo-Christian worldview and is consistent with the divine institutions. Otherwise, uh, are even the, just the most consistent because we know there are people that, that are not all on the same page, uh, but they may, may be a whole lot better than the alternative. And so that's, that's the fundamentals of, of, of my approach here. So I have entitled the series, How Should We Then Vote?, and tonight we're going to move from uh, divine institution number one, which is personal responsibility, to divine institution number two, which is marriage. And just a couple of verses to orient us to some scripture. Uh, this kind of unsettledness, this chaos that we see to get today, the reversal of polarities where we hear so many things said to be good that are not and things that are not that are said to be good, we are to be reminded that this is the same kind of thing that they faced in Israel in the ancient world. And in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, in the midst of a series of woes, Isaiah said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, and prudent in their own sight. And what we understand from that is there are absolutes, 
and we have to vote for whoever will be most in line with those absolutes. Uh, we cannot get discouraged. First Samuel seventeen forty seven reminds us that the battle is the Lord's. It is not ours, so we just do what we can do and all we can do to the best of our ability and above all pray. Prayer is so important now to pray for our nation, pray for our leaders, and pray for wisdom. So we're looking at the foundations of social order, which are the divine institutions. Psalm 11.3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And we have seen in our study in Second Samuel on the last three Tuesday nights, the lessons around 120, 120, one, no, 220, 221, 222, that there is such a movement today, so many different groups that are hostile to all of the divine institutions, and they are hostile, overtly hostile, to a Judeo-Christian worldview. In fact, that is what energizes them, is they want to destroy the influence of Christianity on this country. They hate this country. They hate the Bible and they hate God. And that is the essence of all revolutions as we studied. So tonight I want us to go back, think a little bit about the uh, grid that I have been talking about. Rather than using the, uh, the, the iceberg illustration that I've been using, I want to set it up just a little bit differently as we think about marriage. The, uh, how do we evaluate claims and positions of people who are leaders. And it doesn't just affect that. It affects some of these things that we see on the horizon. The whole concept of identity politics, the concept of critical race theory, the concepts of cultural Marxism, all of these are important for us to evaluate, and this is one of the ways in which we do this. How... And tonight we're talking about marriage. So the issue here is how does the uh, culture at large, the non-Christian culture, how do they look at marriage? And we're comparing that to what biblical Christianity teaches. And so our categories are on the left column, ultimate reality, and that is, is it God or gods or something else? What is... Their belief about the nature of man, is man a sinner, is man uh, corrupt, basically evil, even though he does good things, or is man basically good? Uh, ethics, where do, from where do we get our sense of right and wrong? There are many people who will talk about social justice today, but when you ask the question, where do you derive, from where do you derive your uh, your ethics, your standards, your, your ideas, your values, they don't know. It's, it's groupthink. Whatever seems to be popular, there's no absolute anymore. None of these modern systems have a ground for their ethics. Uh, knowledge, where do we get our knowledge on marriage? And, and then what does it say about marriage? So Christianity teaches that ultimate reality is a personal infinite God who is personally righteous and just is perfectly righteous and just, and secular modernism, postmodernism, cultural Marxism, however you want to define the worldview, does not start with the personal infinite God. It starts with an infinite 
non-personal matter. That's all there is, is just stuff. And stuff is eternal. Whether the stuff is physical or the stuff is energy, it is just stuff. And it is not personal. Uh, And who is man? In the Bible, man, every human being, has value and significance because we're all created in the image and likeness of God. It doesn't matter what our ethnicity is. It doesn't matter what our gender is. What matters is that if you're a human being, then we are all created in the image and likeness of God. But according to the secular philosophies of modernism, postmodernism, cultural Marxism, etc., we're an accident. That's what Darwinian evolution is. It's just at some point in the past, there was some electrical discharge that hit a chemical a blob, and suddenly it went from inorganic to organic matter. matter. And then over millions or billions of years, it gradually, slowly evolves by accidents, by a series of millions and millions and millions of accidents, evolves into you get a human being. But if you come out of a blob, you don't have any more significance than the blob. And that is what impacts ethics. And ethics for uh, Christianity comes from the Bible. God defines that which is right and that which is wrong. But in the secular worldview, man is the measure of his being. Man determines what is right, what is wrong. And most of the time, he determines when it's right and when it's wrong. Today, it may be one way. Tomorrow, it may be another way. It is relative to time and relative to culture, whereas uh, God's absolutes are true for every human being, no matter what century they live and no matter what country they live, no matter their education, whatever it may be, these are universal absolutes. How do we know what we know. How do we know what these values are? How do we know about marriage? Well, according to the Bible, according to Christianity, the Bible reveals to us the source of marriage, that it comes from God. God is the one who instituted marriage. And in secular worldview, it's just experience. It's something that that we found con- to be convenient. And so when it comes to defining it, uh, Christianity says this is a creation institution. God created man, and when he created the human race, mankind, he created male and female, and this was the first marriage, man and wife. And so God defines marriage, he instituted it, and he, as the creator, defines it. Whereas in secularism, it is something of convenience, or today the term is a social construct. It is just something that our culture defines. Some cultures uh, may define marriage uh, differently. And it may be that a man and woman are together, but in a uh, culture that is, uh, that is dominated uh, by matriarchy, where all of the women sort of live together and the men live together and the culture is ruled uh, by women, it has a totally different structure. Uh, So the Bible gives parameters for marriage, defines what it is, what it was supposed to be, what the problems are because of sin, and how we are to overcome the problems caused by sin because of God's grace. And that brings us into New Testament teaching. So if we have seen a divine institution is an absolute social structure 
instituted by God for the entire human race. It's for believers and unbelievers alike. And as long as a culture follows these establishment principles, as long as it follows these institutions, then they will have a uh, structure for the perpetuation of that civilization, uh, stability of that civilization, protection, and a measure of freedom for those in that civilization. And then uh, we have to remember that a divine institution isn't some uh, construct just invented by man. So we've looked at the divine institutions. Number one, individual responsibility. We're all accountable to God. This is the basis for freedom of conscience. This is the basis for all freedom and liberty, recognizing that that's why we spent so much time on individual responsibility. And uh, individual responsibility comes first. So all the subsequent divine institutions, marriage, family, government, nations, and Israel, all must recognize first and foremost individual responsibility. Marriage does not destroy it. It will. Marriage works when both are responsible in terms of the roles that God has uh, provided for them. Same thing with the family. A family where you do not have personal responsibility and accountability within the family, the family will fall apart. Uh, government. Government cannot override those previous divine institutions because it cannot take for itself the responsibilities God gives uh, to each individual, the responsibility that God gives to husbands and to wives, the responsibilities God gives to a family. The government cannot usurp the, these prior divine institutions because then it will destroy them and that will destroy uh, the culture itself. So we go back to where we started in individual responsibility, the creation, and we have to understand that God ordained marriage to provide stability to this new human culture that was going to begin with the creation of Adam, Adam and Eve. And to understand that God's view of the sanctity, the significance, the uniqueness uh, and the importance of marriage, we must look at the biblical record. Genesis one twenty six. God makes his first statement, let us make man in our image. The word for man here is not male. It is a word that in the Hebrew refers to mankind, the human race. And it is, man is created in God's image and likeness, as we have studied already in the first divine, divine institution. In Genesis one twenty seven, we read, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This sets the human race apart. We're not an accident. We are intentionally, purposefully created by God with value, meaning, purpose. And that applies to every uh, single human being. So in God has a perfect plan. And in his perfect plan, men and women are equally his image bearers. This sets the biblical view apart from all other religious views and philosophical views. It sets the biblical view of gender and sex roles in a completely different category from all other systems of religion and uh, philosophy. And it's based on an understanding that we reflect in a unique way 
the essence of God, but in a finite way. We are not eternal. We are not infinite, but we possess corresponding qualities and characteristics so that we can uh, enjoy a relationship with God. That is why God created us so that he could communicate with us and we could understand from him. Now, when we go to Genesis one twenty six and 27, the non-Christian, non-biblical, liberal, modern mind comes along and says, well, this is just a fable, this is just a myth, that Genesis 1 describes one creation story, and Genesis 2 derives from a different creation story. But a Christian, a Bible-believing Christian, can't get sucked into that because you really have one creation story. We have to understand the Hebrew mind, the Hebrew way of writing, was first to give an overview or a summary and then to come back and fill in the details. And so Genesis 1 tells us the creation week, what happened on each of those seven days, and then it comes back after that and talks about the specifics of what occurred on the sixth day, the creation of the animals as well as the creation of Adam and Eve. Jesus Christ affirmed that both had equal authority and were equally from God in Matthew chapter 19, 4 and 5. He's asked a question about divorce, and in answering that, he said, he answered and said to them, that is the disciples, (coughs) have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? That comes from Genesis 1.27. So he's validating the accuracy of Genesis chapter 1. And remember, Jesus Christ is infallible and inerrant, despite that foolish CNN reporter last week who said, no, where does... He said the majority of people believe Jesus had some flaws or failures or something and shows his total ignorance of the Bible and Christianity. So uh, God is perfect. Jesus Christ is perfect. And Jesus accurately understands and interprets the Bible for us. In Matthew 19.5, he then says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And that comes from the second chapter of Genesis, Genesis 2.25. So this tells us that Jesus is treating the narratives in each chapter as being equally authoritative and equally accurate. And so we can build our understanding of of human beings and our understanding of marriage and males and females on that foundation. So from there, what I want to do is talk about the account of the creation of the woman in Genesis Genesis chapter 2. We'll start in Genesis 2-7. And there's a progression here. You may want to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, but I've got most of these verses on on slides. And so you can follow with me as you see this progression. Starting in verse uh, 5, where we're told before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown, the Lord God had not yet caused it to rain. So this is just prior to the creation of man, and everything is in this primordial state. And then we're told the Lord God formed man, and this is the male of the dust of the ground. So he has the chemicals, and he mixes the chemicals together and pats it together, and he forms or shapes. It's the word that is used to describe a potter 
working with clay. He forms man. He forms his legs. He forms his arms. Everything, and God being omnipotent, it does this down to the the, the microscopic submolecular level, down to the DNA chains and the RNA and the protein chains and everything else. God creates this. And so he creates the body, then he breathes life into man, breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, and man becomes a living being. So this is the man, this is Adam. And Adam is uh, his name because he comes from the Adama. Adama is the Hebrew word for ground. So he comes from the ground, he comes from the earth, And then God says, as we go through some other aspects of the creation, several things take place in there. As we read through the the chapter, first Adam is created, and then he is going to create the plants. He's going to create uh, the rivers that come out of Eden, and uh, God is going to identify them and name them. And then we go, and he takes the man that he has created, puts him into the garden to tend it and to keep it in verse 15, and then he begins to give a command to him in terms of what he can eat and what he should not eat. And then what happens as we go through this progress, God makes a statement in verse 18. God says, the Lord God says, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. Now, when you read that, the word good has a lot of meanings. The word good can mean good versus evil with a moral concept. But if we have a moral concept here, then we've got a problem because then God is saying it is not morally good for man to be alone. And that isn't what God is saying. He is not saying it's immoral for man to be alone. He is saying that it's not according to plan. That's another uh, idea in the word tov, that tov has the idea of doing something. You sit down and you're going to make something. You may be in the kitchen baking something. You may be out in the workshop and you are constructing something and you have a blueprint. This would be comparable to what God is doing in the kitchen. You may have a recipe. And so you you have a plan. And you make something according to the plan, and when you are finished, if it conforms to the plan, you say, it's good. It's good. It's what I intended. Well, God looks at Adam, and he says, it's not good. It's not what I intended. It is not my purpose that man should be alone. I will make a helper for him. Now, remember, When God makes the animals and he makes the fish and he makes the birds, he makes them male and female. So there are these distinct categories of gender that runs through the animal kingdom. And so God always intended that there would be a female counterpart to the male. But at this point, he hasn't created the female yet. says, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper. Now, this is an important word, but in the, in the view of the feminist worldview that has come along, being a helper, being an assistant is, is demeaning. That's their concept, that, that this demeans women. And the problem with that is that in the Bible, this word that is translated helper, azer, is the word help, and it's used mostly to refer to the 
work of God in helping man. Psalm 121.2, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now, what does that tell us? That tells us that God views himself as man's helper and that being a helper is a good thing. Being a helper is very important. And there's nothing belittling, there's nothing demeaning about being a helper. A helper is very important. Uh, If you give somebody a mission and they have somebody who's helping them accomplish that mission, that's a good thing because alone they can't accomplish that mission. And that is the idea that we have here. And so in verse 19, now we're told, after God has made Adam, after he's brought all the trees into the garden and made the garden, he looks at the man, he says, it's not good for man to be alone, I need to make a helper, but he doesn't make the helper right away. What's the next thing that he does? He creates the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and brings them to Adam. Now, a lot of commentators, I think this is probably close to the truth, the beasts of the field here describes those that are uh, the domesticatable kind that will be uh, around the garden. Uh, We can't push that, but that is a strong possibility. And so God then forms these animals, and he brings them to Adam to see what he would call them. So he's doing a couple of different things here. First of all, he's uh, giving Adam the opportunity to observe uh, the animals and to use his creative ability that God has given him to name the animals and to categorize and classify them. But it's more, it, the, the purpose is deeper than that. God wants Adam to realize he's missing something. He's missing that counterpart because when he goes through all of the different animals he recognizes that there is a male and a female for every creature but not for him in verse 20 adam gave names to all cattle to the birds of the air to the beasts of the field but for adam there was not found a helper comparable to him adam recognizes that something's missing they all have a buddy They all have a companion, but I don't. And so this is when God works to create the woman. The Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in his place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. The first thing you observe is that the woman doesn't come out of the dirt. You can make of that whatever you want to. The man comes out of the dirt, but the woman is taken from the side of man. But there's a reason for this. This is, again, not something demeaning because God is creating a a genetic unification in the human race. The woman, if she were created separately, would not be genetically connected to the male. This way, everyone in the human race has their origin in Adam every single one of them. And that will be important because it creates a genetic unity so that one who is a man, that Jesus Christ, the Savior, can come and die for all mankind because there's that genetic connection. And so God has a plan and a purpose here, and he wants the entire human race con- connected. And then in verse 23, Adam sees her and says, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. 
He, if she wasn't a separate connection, he said, who are you? I don't want you. But, but she's unif- united to him. She shall be called Isha, and because she was taken out of man, Ish. So he is Ish. What's interesting is that A-H at the end of a, he- of a Hebrew noun indicates a direction sometimes. Sometimes it, it also indicates femininity. Uh, it's a feminine noun. But it's Isha. She comes from man. It indicates that, that kind of a direction. So if you're going somewhere uh, in, in a bi- Bible directed somewhere, something comes from something like Adam comes from the ground, from Adama. It's that same ending. It indicates uh, a source or, or, or direction. Now, this order of creation is really important. It's important because, first of all, God is establishing that there is an authority within marriage. And this is in perfect environment, remember, so authority is not something that is a bad idea. In fact, a lot of people today get the idea that we have authority, authority is bad, you see bumper stickers that say question authority, and in many cases that might be true because we live in a corrupt world and so we don't want to give anybody complete authority over us. But this is before the fall and there is an authority relationship that will become corrupted because of the fall, but at this point it is in perfection. And so we have to understand something about authority. Authority is at the very essence of personality and a society. There's always somebody who is in authority, and there are others who are not in authority. We see this even in God. In Christianity, we believe in a triune God, a God who is one essence, in three persons, they are one. Jesus says of the Father, I and the Father are one. It's a unity. But he also says, I can do nothing that, unless the Father tells me. So this is what we see in John five nineteen. Jesus says, speaking of himself, I am the Son. The Son can do nothing of himself. He's not independent of the Father in terms of that, the plan. But what he, that is what the Son sees the Father do... For whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. So he clearly, he is a distinct person and has a role, and that is he is subordinate to the father in his role, but not in his person, not in his being. He is equal with God in his being. Let me give you an illustration. You have a football team. On a football team, you have a number of different players, and all of them, let's say it's a Pro Bowl team, all of them are outstanding Players. They are the best in their position. And you have those who are running backs. You have those who are defensive on the defensive line. You have quarterbacks. Usually the quarterback is the leader of the team. He's the one who calls the plays. But the quarterback may be the best quarterback, in, the pe- best in his role as a quarterback. But as a human being, he is equal with any of the running backs, he is equal with any of the men on the defensive line or on the offense line or the center. He is equal with them as a human being. They are the best that they can be in their role, and he is the best he can be at his role, but they can't interchange their roles because then you would just have chaos on the team. 
So there has to be that, that role distinction. And this is what you have in the Trinity. Jesus is subordinate to the Father. The Holy Spirit is subordinate to the Son and the Father. But just a few chapters later, Jesus says in John 10.10, I and the Father are one. We are a unity. And the Jews understood that he was claiming to be full deity because their response was to pick up rocks and stones to stone Jesus and to kill him for, for claiming to be God. That was the height of blasphemy, and the penalty for blasphemy was, uh, was capital punishment. And so this tells us, on the one hand, Jesus is one with the Father. On the other hand, there's role distinctions, and role distinctions do not mean that Jesus is less significant, less important, or that he is being demeaned by the Father for being in a subordinate role because even in subordinate role, they're equal. Now, this becomes important for understanding marriage in other passages. Whenever Paul talks about the role of husbands and wives, he always goes back to Greek culture. Just seeing if anybody's paying attention. He always goes back to the original creation. He never bases it on this is what we what we do. We're Greeks. This is this is our social construct. Uh, where where we have men and they're the boss. That we're patriarchal because that's our social construct. He he doesn't say that. He says we have to go back to what God did in the garden. So he says, I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now this concept of headship means authority. And that is very clear from the uses of this word, uh, kephale in the Greek, which is used again and again in many, many, many different contexts. And there have been a couple of different scholars. Wayne House is one. Wayne Grudem is another who have gone through and they have analyzed every single use of this word. And it is not a word that is used to describe source, like the source of a river. Jesus is, I mean, Paul is not saying the source of every man is Christ. The source of every woman is man, and the source of Christ is God. Christ did not, is not sourced in God the Father. They are equally eternal and infinite. There's no beginning to Christ. So the word head means authority. Uh, God the Father is in authority over Christ, and uh, the man is, uh, Christ is over every man, and the man is in authority over the woman. Why? For a man, and, and then this is where he's talking about head coverings in prayer. We're not going to talk about that. But he says, For a man indeed ought to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. So he doesn't repeat image because she's in the image of God. She's the glory of the man, for man is not from the woman, but the woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man to be his assistant. And in First Timothy 2.12, uh, we read it, uh, Paul says, I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. And all the evangelical feminists and all the feminists just absolutely uh, have a hemorrhage over this. But he, he explains it. He doesn't say because that's how we do it in a Greek culture. That's how we did it in a Jewish culture. He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. There was a purpose and a design in God's order. And so this is important to understand things. And he's going to go on and he will apply that within the role of the of the woman in marriage there uh, uh, 1 Timothy 2 
So what we see here is that God is one, same essence, and he exists as three persons, Son, uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that the Father is God, Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. They are equal to each other, but they are distinct. The Son is not the Father, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Father is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. So we can derive three important observations from this. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are fully and equally God. Just as male and female are equally in the image of God, and therefore in their essence one is not superior to the other. However, the Son is under the authority of the Father, and the Holy Spirit under the authority of the Father and the Son, so that there is a subordination of roles, what we call the, the fancy terms for this, which are important, are that this describes, the, the role dis- distinction is described by the term the economic function, okay? The unity is described as the ontological unity. Don't get stumble over those words. But one of the reasons I'm saying that is because there are some conservatives who will say that economics are not related to social laws. So we, need be, we can be con- economic conservatives, but we, can, we don't have to be social conservatives. In other words, we have to have a good, solid uh, philosophy of money and economics. Okay, so we don't want to get into debt. We have to have solid, uh, a, a, a sound money system, a so- sound financial system. But we can go along with gay marriage, and we can go along with... Uh, all kinds of other social things, but these aren't connected to each other. But in the ultimate, the ultimate meaning, the ultimate entity, who is God, you do not have a distinction between social and economic function. Okay, they have to be connected. You cannot divorce them. And so you can't come along and say, well, we're going to have good economic laws and we can play with social arrangements all over the place. You can't say that. That's not how God created his universe. So the woman is going to be uh, the helper to the man. But here we have a problem after sin. After sin, this, this ideal situation, this utopic marriage is, is going to be fractured because of sin, just like everything else. And, and the woman becomes a corrupt sinner, the man becomes a corrupt sinner, and this begins the battle of the sexes. This is why we have difficulties in marriage, because our sin natures are saying, me first, and when you have two people who are saying, me first, me first, me first, then you're going to have problems in that relationship. So when God tells the woman what the consequences are going to be for her sin. He says, I will, first of all, your mission, which was to have children, going back to Genesis 1, 26 and 27, be fruitful and multiply. That command is going to be difficult and painful for you to fulfill. I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. So, so it's going to be difficult a little bit to begin with, 
But it wasn't going to have this horrible misery and everything else that goes along with it. That is all the result of, of Eve's sin and God's judgment on that. In pain you shall bring forth children. And then he says, your desire will be for your husband. And a lot of people over the years have taken that to be a sexual desire. But that's not what this word means. There's other words in Hebrew that would communicate that. This is the Hebrew word teshuka, which has the idea of desire to control. It's only used three times in the Bible. It's used twice in Genesis, once here and once in Genesis 4. The next time it's used, that's when Moses writes this in about 1500 B.C., when, when, uh, 1400 B.C., when the ne- it's used the next time, it's used in Song of Solomon, written by Solomon, written in poetry in a completely different context. And so you, you, one of the rules of uh, word usage is you can't jump authors and jump, jump centuries uh, without good confirming evidence. In Genesis 4-7, God is confronting uh, Cain with his desire to to be approved by God and his desire, therefore, to get back at Abel because Abel brought a better sacrifice. And so he is fuming and he's filled with hatred for Abel. And God warns him that this sin is dangerous, that, that, if, he, that if he entertains this sin, that it's going to have horrible consequences, that this sin is, he's, is compared by God to a ravenous, crouching carnivore who seeks to devour you. And so God says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do the right thing, you'll be approved. You'll be great. If you do not do well, if you continue to disobey me, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you to control you, to dominate you. But he says, you should rule over it. So there's that contrast there again between these two kinds of of uh, desires, and so the only thing that's going to deal with this is going to be uh, the Holy Spirit and re- redemption, because because sin is the problem, and the only solution to sin is to be born again, to be regenerated, and that's why in the New Testament we have instructions that are given to wives and husbands so that they can understand what the roles are and how to deal with this. There's got to be, you've got to love one another, you've got to forgive one another. The man can't always be right, the woman's not always right. There has to be a recognition of these distinctions. And so Paul says in Ephesians 5, to 25, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So there's an analogy there. In the same way that you submit to your husband, you submit to the Lord. And that's kind of a barometer. If you say, oh, man, I'm not really very submissive to my husband, take a look at your walk with the Lord. Maybe you're not too submissive there either. But that's getting pretty close to home, and I don't want to step on too many toes. The husband, again, he says the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. And that means the husband is the authority in the home. He's an authority. It's not just men. It's not just saying you're the boss. It's saying God's going to hold you accountable for every decision, everything that takes place in the home. This is uh, divine institution number one. And so you can't just act like, well, we're going to do everything the way I want it to do because that's not how Christian leaders lead. They do not have this authoritative mentality. They are to be servants 
So it's a completely different model in the in the New Testament. This is how you deal with, to be a servant, what do you have to have? Humility. What, what's your orientation with your sin nature? It's arrogance. And so, see, what you have to do is you have to develop humility to be a good husband and not be the one who lords it over your wife. Uh, Ephesians 5.24, Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Same thing goes for wives. You, you, you need to be submissive. He's not doing things the way you want him to do, do things, so you have to let him learn the hard way sometimes. And that's not easy because sometimes if he's learning the hard way, it's going to blow back on you a little bit. And most wives don't really like to suffer the consequences for your husband's stupid decisions. But this is living life is messy. This is what happens, whether you want it to or not. Uh, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. That's the mandate for the husband. You have to love your wife just as Christ loved the church. He gave his life for her. That's the mentality here. Now, there's other key passages on the responsibilities of husbands and wives in 1 Corinthians 11, 3 to 12, Ephesians 5, 21 to 27, Colossians 3, 18 to 21, and 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. These are all important passages to look at, to look at and, and, and to study. Uh, Benjamin Franklin, who was a bachelor at the time, uh, gave a little wise advice on this. See, I'm connecting this to the founding fathers. He says, the key for a successful husband is to, or, is to keep your eyes wide open before marriage and half shut afterwards. Okay, now the Bible comes along because God has instituted marriage. It provides protections for marriage. And these protections come in the forms of the Mosaic Law. Now, the Mosaic Law doesn't make these things wrong. They were wrong all along. From, from Genesis 4, we all know murder is wrong, but the Ten Commandments say thou shalt not murder. But that doesn't make murder wrong. Murders always be wrong. So the same thing is true about adultery. And in uh, Exodus, uh, we read you sh- uh, in the Seventh Commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Now, later on in the law, these things are going to be spelled out uh, quite a bit. And the purpose for these laws is not because God's some big bad guy in the sky who just wants to keep everybody from having fun. The reason we have these laws is so that there can be order and not chaos and that people will be protected from the sin and the sin nature of other people and that there can be stability in the marriage and therefore stability in the culture and stability in the nation. Um, Jesus affirms this in the New Testament. He says, you have heard it said uh, by those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Exodus 20.14 isn't just talking about a physical act. It's talking about the uh, mental attitude sin that may go along with them. So these laws are given for the purpose of building and developing a culture of stability. In Deuteronomy 4, uh, God says, see, I have taught you, or Moses says, see, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to, to possess it. So keep and do them. 
for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statues and say. See, this is your, he's telling the Israelites, this is how you're a witness to all these pagans around you. Remember, all the pagans around them are all involved in fertility worship and orgies and and going to uh, the temple prostitutes, male and female. All this stuff is going on around them, and they are going to be a bright, shiny example of how things are supposed to be. And so God is saying, if you do this, then you're going to have all this prosperity and all this blessing, and the people will look at you and say, surely this nation, these Israelites, are a wise and understanding people. Or they'll say, what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as th- their law? See, that was, their, that was their role and mission. They were to be a, a, light, uh, a light to the world. So there are prohibitions against adultery. And then you go on and further, this is further developed in Leviticus chapter 20, verses 10 through 21. And in this section, God goes into a pretty in-depth description of the various sexual prohibitions that would ensure the sanctity and the distinctiveness uh, of marriage. He didn't want people coming along and say, well, you didn't mention bestiality, or you didn't mention homosexuality. You didn't mention anywhere that these things were wrong. And so God spells it out. Now, I'm not going to read through all of them, so you can relax a little bit. Uh, but we'll just look at the first couple of verses. In verse 10, he states, The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So these were capital crimes. Why were they capital crimes? Because they threatened the very fabric of the nation, the stability of the culture. It, it's comparable to an act of treason. This, when this is allowed, it has such a damaging effect. Remember what Peter says. Peter says that the, avoid these lusts that war, these fleshly lusts that war against the soul. They war against the soul of a nation as well when we have this permissiveness, and that's what's characterized this generation since the 60s. It's an antinomian. That means it's a lawless generation. Verse 11 says, The man who lies with his father's wife has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. It shows a lack of respect for authority, a lack of respect for for his father. Verse 12, if a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall be put to death. If a, verse 13, if a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. And then the next eight verses continue this. So this clearly prohibits homosexuality. Now, this is, this, is this what makes homosexuality wrong? No, it's been wrong from the creation. God judged the homosexuality of Sodom and Gomorrah. It was not a sin of arrogance that was, of course, involved, but it was a physical sin. Often people go to, I can't remember the chapter now, but it's over in, uh, I think it's in Jeremiah, where Jeremiah uses the term Sodom, but he's actually talking to Jerusalem because Jerusalem has become like Sodom. And so he calls them Sodom. He does that in the first chapter. 
He, he's, there's no Sodom and Gomorrah uh, around at that time. It hasn't been rebuilt. And so he just refers to them as that and talks about them as being arrogant. They weren't, had not gone as far as the literal Sodom and Gomorrah. But the New Testament reiterates this. In fact, the New Testament te- says that the licentiousness of homosexuality, of same-sex unions, of lesbianism, are a judgment on, of God on a culture that has already rejected him. Okay, you, you hear sometimes you'll hear Christians say, oh, God's going to judge us because of all of this. Well, all of this is God's judgment on us for rejecting him. Romans one twenty six to 27 in the uh, uh, new, uh, new English translation, the net translation, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. See, God gives them up. He said, okay, you really want to let that happen? I'm going to just pull back the restraints and you're just going to let it fly. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For even their women exchanged the, unna- uh, exchanged the natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. And likewise, that means in the same manner, uh, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed in their passions for one another. Men committed, sexual, uh, committed shameless acts with men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error it brings its own self destruction the sins these these evil passions that war against the soul now does that mean that if you commit these sins you can't be saved not at all this is one of the really bad things that happens out there is if you ask uh, non christians about uh, about Christians' view of homosexuality, they, then they're going to say, oh, they're so judgmental, they're so horrible, and whatever. In fact, one of the unfortunate realities in recent years is that Christians are portrayed as being so self-righteous and judgmental. And in fact, in some cases, they are, unfortunately. They don't understand grace. Uh, the, and, and so Christianity is being smeared with this anti-gay, anti homosexual bias. And so one of the uh, uh, Pew surveys uh, several years ago asked, what is the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of the word Christian? Over 90% of young Americans surveyed answered anti-homosexual. That was the first thing that came to their mind. That is what defines a Christian is they hate homosexuals. But So this should not be our attitude. The, uh, judgment should come from God, not from us. Now, we don't like homosexuality being crammed down our throats, as it were, by, by legislative action because we understand that it threatens the stability of a culture. Not because we think that these people are necessarily bad or evil or that they're going to go to hell or anything like that. We just understand that by allowing this kind of licentiousness, it's self-destructive. And so that's why we are uh, uh, take a position against same-sex marriage. But you have passages like 1 Corinthians 6, 8 through 10, which are often misquoted and misunderstood. And in this passage, Paul is addressing an, an extremely licentious culture in Corinth. They were just as bad as anything going on in Houston. They were very similar to Houston in that they were a port city, and they had people coming from all over the world, and they had all kinds of perversions taking place. 
And so in 1 Corinthians 6, 8, they're being addressed because of their, uh, their wrong attitude and their sins. And Paul says, you yourselves are wrongdoers and cheat. Well, this other thing may not be your sin, but this is your sin. You're wrongdoers. And I translated it that way because the, the Greek word is a word that is often translated as unrighteous. And that is not the concept here. It is wrongdoers. You yourselves. He's all through here. He's talking about you yourself. You guys are Christians. So he's not saying you're unrighteous in the sense that you're not, not believers. He's saying you're wrongdoers. And you do these things to your brethren. You're, you're cheating your, your fellow Christians. And he says, do you not know that the wrongdoers, there's going to be consequences. The wrongdoers, see, it says in the most translations, the righteous uh, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so people think, well, that means that, or it says the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so most people think that means you're not getting saved. But it's not talking about salvation here. They're already saved. He's talking to these, these uh, immoral Corinthians. He says, don't you know that wrongdoers, that if you continue like this as a Christian, that you'll suffer consequences at the judgment seat of Christ. There won't be an inheritance of the kingdom. Uh, do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. So, so he's, he's very clear. There's a whole host of bad behavior that, that is going to put in jeopardy your eternal inheritance, not your eternal salvation. But your roles and responsibilities in the coming kingdom are going to be put in jeopardy if you continue in to be a thief, if you continue to be covetous. You know, now, that hits everybody. You just go down to a mall and walk through and do a little window shopping, and I want that, and I want that, and I want that. Wouldn't that look great on me? And uh, that's just covetous. So uh, God is saying, you know, all of these are, are sins, and they're all going to jeopardize that inheritance if you don't straighten out. Now, is there forgiveness for that? Sure, you confess your sin, you're forgiven, and that's how we move on when we commit a sin. God is saying, not saying, do not sin. That's impossible. But God is saying, don't stay in carnality. You know, don't live in carnality, justifying all of this behavior, making it the characteristic of your life. So he's not saying here that homosexuals don't go to heaven, because if that's true, he's saying idolaters don't go to heaven, and most Americans are mental idolaters in one form or another. Adulterers don't go to heaven, fornicators, covetous people don't go to heaven, revilers don't go to heaven. That's anybody who has uh, said something nasty about some politician. You're a reviler. Well, you know, if that were true, then none of us are going to go to heaven. Uh, so, so we have to understand that this is not p- picking on homosexuals and sodomites and singling them out. It is just talking about these are the predominant sins of, that can come up in any culture. Uh, it's also mentioned as a sin in 1 Timothy 1, 9, and 10. It comes up, there's a whole list of sins in verse 10. It says, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there's any other thing that's contrary to sound doctrine. So that pretty much covers the gambit of sin. So it's, the Bible doesn't single out homosexuality as as a particular sin. And so we have to be gracious and kind. Everybody has their area of weakness. 
Uh, some people are just, uh, you know, some men just have a really pro- real problem with women, and they're just womanizers, and that's something they have to deal with. And there's others that are just have a trend towards covetousness, and they're materialistic all the time. Other people have mental attitude sins of judgmental attitudes and anger. All of these things destroy your Christian life. They eat up our soul. And so we have to understand and have a balance and be gracious towards everyone, uh, no matter what their area of sin might be. But that doesn't mean we're permissive either. In 1 Peter 2.11, Peter says, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts. There's something distinctive about these fleshly lusts that wars against the soul. Now, another big question that comes up that I'll answer pretty quickly is, well, didn't God allow polygamy in the Old Testament? Because the definition that we're seeing here is marriage is one man and one woman for life. And didn't God allow polygamy in the Old Testament? And we have to recognize, well, first of all, God didn't completely prohibit it in the Old Testament. And there were other things God didn't specifically address in the Old Testament. But God never endorsed polygamy in the Old Testament. It's never endorsed. He regulates it in the Mosaic Law because people did it, and so he wanted to protect the wives. Same thing with concubines. Concubines were not a wife per se, but it was, in the ancient world, it's hard for us to relate to this, it was a legal position that wasn't on the same level as being a wife, but God protects it. That doesn't mean he endorses it, uh, and that's in the progress of law. Uh, It's portrayed negatively. For example, in Deuteronomy 17.17, God prohibits kings from practicing polygamy, and it led to destruction. David did, and Solomon did, but how many people can you think of in the Old Testament that had more than one wife? Abraham did not. Abraham had Sarah. Hagar was a concubine. That is not polyg- was never considered polygamy. After Sarah died, he had another wife. Isaac had a wife, Rebekah. He did not have but one wife. Jacob had two wives because he got tricked out of the one he wanted, but he had two wives and two concubines, and it caused him nothing but trouble. Okay, and God is showing us that if you do not follow the pattern, you're going to have problems. Okay, and then you get into uh, uh, Exodus. Moses is not a, a, a polygamist. You get further on and you start finding a few that here and there, but mostly they, they don't. You don't really, I can't think of any other examples till you get to David and you get to uh, uh, I can't remember if Saul, I think Saul just had one wife. Uh, David did not have, uh, David had multiple wives, and then Solomon Solomon really had multiple wives. In 1 Kings 11.3, it says Solomon had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. I remember John Hintz when he was teaching a Bible class for high school kids when I was in high school. Now, you know, he's pastor of Tucson Bible Church, would say, Every time he'd quote that, he'd say, why would a guy with 700 wives want 300 concubines? All of this was rebellion against God, though, because it disobeyed Deuteronomy 17, 17. that said, neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. That's what happened to Solomon. See, it, it never worked out. 
There's not a positive portrayal of polygamy in the Bible. So God is not endorsing it at, at all. So what have we learned? First of all, marriage is defined as one man with one woman. It, it's not, God does not allow same-sex unions. Second, the purposes of marriage. First, it's for companionship and to have a complementary partner that's spelled with an E, not an I. Men, you still need to complement your wives. That's spelled with an I. But you are to complement each other. That's spelled with an E. And to glorify God through serving him together. Adam needed a helper to help him do what? Pull the weeds? No, to fulfill God's responsibility in uh, ruling over the uh, birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and the beasts of the field, and to explore and, and develop all the resources on this wonderful planet that God had created for us. And last but not least is procreation, to be fruitful and multiply. But that only applies to a, to a small part of one's whole life. And the rest of it is related to these other purposes of marriage. Second thing that we've learned is that homosexuality and by inference same-sex marriages are sins. They aren't unforgivable sins, but they are sins. And they have consequences, just like many, many other sins have consequences. And these consequences, in many cases, they war against the soul and they war against the soul of a nation. They are self-destructive as our mental attitude sins like jealousy and bitterness and anger and resentment. They are self-destructive. Third, leaders should never approve of immorality. So when we look at electing leaders, we need to elect leaders who don't approve of same-sex marriage because that's approving immorality, and we should never have leaders who approve of immorality. And fourth, if marriage is not kept sacred, then it can mean anything. Once the definition changes from one man and one woman, then it can be one man and many women, many women and, and or, or many uh, many men and one woman, or it can be an adult child. And te- ever since the law related to same-sex marriage changed in 2015, you have seen more and more people pushing for laws to change related to polygamy laws to change related to if you get married, same sex, why not men and boys? And there's a lot of that, and it's getting more vocal all the time. Okay, so there are all of these various problems. Now, what did the founding fathers think about this? Zephaniah Swift, he was an author, and he was America's first, wrote the America's first legal text in 1795, And he wrote, if sodomy, though repugnant to every sentiment of decency and delicacy, is very prevalent in corrupt corrupt and debauched countries, where the low pleasures of sensuality and luxury have depraved the mind and degraded the appetite below the brutal creation. They did not have a positive view of homosexuality. Charles Carroll, one of the solid Christians, he was Roman Catholic, had a clear understanding of the gospel, said, without morals, a republic cannot subsist any length of time. James Otis, a founding father, goes along with this. He says, when a man's will and pleasure is his only rule and guide, what safety can there be either for him 
or against him, but in the point of a sword. This is going to end up badly and end up in death. George Washington loved his wife, loved Martha, wrote to her, for in my estimation, more permanent and genuine happiness is to be found in the sequestered walks of connubial life than in the giddy rounds of promiscuous pleasure or the more tumultuous and imposing scenes of successful ambition. Basically saying there, there's nothing as happy as being on a walk with you than fighting battles, being praised for leadership, or achieving my ambitions. Being with my wife is the best pleasure there is on earth. Samuel Adams said religion and good morals are the only solid foundation of public liberty and happiness. And then we come to the really, really long quote. William Blackstone, he was the uh, definitive commentator on the laws of England, read by everybody who worked on the Constitution, who served in political office. This was the standard text for understanding law, said, What has been here observed is the infamous crime against nature committed either with man or beast, a crime which ought to be strictly and impartially proved and then is strictly and impartially punished. I will not act so disagreeable a part to my readers as well as myself as to dwell any longer upon a subject, the very mention of which is a disgrace to human nature, speaking of sodomy. Where that crime is found which is unfit even to know, we command the law to arise armed with an avenging sword that the infamous men who are or shall in the future be guilty of it may undergo the most severe punishments." This the voice of nature and of reason and the express law of God determined to be capital, of which we have a signal instance long before the Jewish dispensation by the destruction of two cities by fire from heaven so that this is a universal, not merely a provincial precept. And then last, Alexis de Tocqueville in his work on democracy in America in the early 1800s observed, there is certainly no country in the world where the tie of marriage is more respected than in America. He observed an extremely moral Christian culture. So this is what we must take into account when we're going to vote, is what is our view, uh, what is the view of our elected officials on the sacred institution of marriage. This is important. Father, thank you for the clear guidance we have for Scripture from understanding the importance of marriage, and may we each be challenged in our own marriages in what you expect and what uh, the purpose of marriage is. Father, we pray for our country that has turned its back on your word, that there would be clear testimony, witness from the millions of Christians that still hold true to your word, that they might stand fast and stand strong in these dark days. And we pray for your strength uh, during this time that we may trust and focus on you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.